Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Between Nature and Grace. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 4th, 2009. This morning I stumbled out of bed a little before 5 a.m. and began the day like I do each and every day. I slipped into my Uggs, walked down the hallway, then let our dog Abby out the back door for her morning rituals. The air was cool and dry despite record hot days. All was quiet in the neighborhood. The ink black sky hadn't yet given way to the morning light. Venus sparkled in full force in the southern sky, accompanied by thousands of twinkling stars. I felt like the psalmist of 3,000 years ago from Psalm chapter 8. Lord, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've established, what are human beings that you're mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. The magnitude and magnificence of creation witness to our human insignificance. And yet human beings, and only human beings, enjoy a divine dignity as caregivers of creation. And so Blaise Pascal exclaimed, Oh, the grandeur in littleness, the excellence in corruption, the majesty in meanness of man. And oddly enough, it's precisely in acknowledging rather than denying our contradictions that human happiness rests. The desert monastics of 3rd and 4th century Egypt devoted their lives to listening to the voice of human experience, filtered through Holy Scripture and tested by the traditions of their predecessors. Just what did they find when they fled to the vast and lonely interior of the Egyptian desert? They experienced a raging battle in the geography of the human heart. What Professor John Krasavgas has called a spirituality of imperfection. Created to bear the image of God, we struggle against a wide variety of contrary impulses. Listen to example for Germanus, who asks his elder, Why is it that superfluous thoughts insinuate themselves into us so subtly and hiddenly when we do not even want them, and indeed do not even know of them, that it's very difficult not only to cast them out, but even to understand them and to catch hold of them? And that's only the beginning of the battle for the wholeness of the heart. These Christian eccentrics of the desert exhibit a remarkable candor 
as he says, without any obfuscating embarrassment. A candor that does not in the least despise anyone in belittling fashion for frailty and failure. Here's a quick list of only a few maladies that I've underlined from the conferences of John Cassian. Cassian lived from about 360 to 435, and we owe it to him for much of our knowledge about early monasticism. Sleeplessness, vile dreams, impulsive urges, seething emotions, foolish fantasies, pious pretense that masks as virtue, clerical ambition, pernicious despair, confusion, wild mood swings, flattery, and lust. The list is almost endless, and these are only symptoms of ill health that we know. In addition to these, says Cassian, are, quote, many things that lie hidden in my conscience, which are known and manifest to God, even though they may be unknown and obscure to me. Freud had nothing on these wise counselors of the desert. <clears throat> Paradox and humor are never far away in monastic literature. Why is it, Cassian wonders, that a monk can renounce great wealth, then exhibit intense possessiveness and anger over a penknife, a needle, a basket, a blanket, or a book? These desert ascetics were brutally realistic about our human condition and unfailingly tender because of it. And they weren't hopeless. Rather, they were confident that we can make progress through vigilance and trust in God's grace. Even though, paradoxically, the more mature you become, the wiser you are regarding your many own failures. We are, writes Cassian, only human beings. The New Testament reading this week from the book of Hebrews affirms that wherever we find ourselves, God speaks to us at many times and in various ways. Maybe he speaks to us through a book, a film, a friend, a song, perhaps a dream, a work of art or nature. He certainly speaks to many people through the glories of creation. Ultimately, though, God speaks most fully in Jesus. For it's in Jesus that he most fully reveals himself. We read in Hebrews 1, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. To demonstrate the deepest heart of God, Jesus shared in humanity's flesh and blood. He was made like us in every respect. He suffered like we do. He prayed with loud cries and tears and died a violent death. In that death, he tasted death for everyone and in some mysterious way destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Conquering sin, death, and the devil is, in fact, 
a convenient shorthand for who Jesus was and what he did. And as a consequence, mercy, empathy, and compassion characterize the God we worship. The pastor and poet George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633, wrote a poem about our many human contradictions and the even greater mercy of God. The poem is called Affliction 4, and in it he pictures man as caught in the awkward space between human nature and divine grace. Broken in pieces all asunder, Lord, hunt me not, a thing forgot. Once a poor creature, now a wonder, a wonder tortured in the space betwixt this world and that of grace. My thoughts are all a case of knives, wounding my heart with scattered smart. As watering pots give flowers their lives, nothing their fury can control, while they do wound and prick my soul. All my attendants are at strife, quitting their place unto my face. Nothing performs the task of life, the elements are let loose to fight, and while I live, try out their right. Oh, help my God, let not their plot kill them and me, and also thee, who art my life. Dissolve the knot as the sun scatters by his light all the rebellions of the night. Then shall those powers which work for grief enter thy pay, and day by day labor thy praise in my relief with care and courage building me till I reach heaven and much more thee. <clears throat> Herbert's poetry reflects his lifelong struggle between his privileged background and his worldly ambitions as a member of parliament and the Cambridge, Cambridge University faculty until his choice to live as a poor country cleric in rural England. Like the psalmist, Pascal, and the early desert fathers, George Herbert knew from his own experience that human frailty abounds. But he also knew that grace abounds all the more. For books this week, I review Jeffrey Tubin, The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court. New York Anchor Books, 2007, 452 pages. Jeffrey Tubin's book has garnered a dozen Book of the Year awards for his description of the life, work, and especially the power of partisan ideology inside the highest court of the land. Tubin, a graduate of Harvard Law School and author of numerous books, combines his own knowledge of the legal land with extensive interviews with all the justices and 75 of their clerks to craft a genuine page-turner.
But Tubin has an agenda beyond mere description. What we've witnessed since the beginning of the Reagan years <coughs> and the founding of the Federalist Society in 1980, says Tubin, is nothing less than a powerful and dramatic counter-revolution of conservative political ideology on the court. This movement has been fueled by right-wing Republicans, white evangelicals like James Dobson, and political operatives at all levels. They are unapologetic and crystal clear about their agenda. Expand executive power, end racial preferences intended to assist African Americans, speed up executions, welcome religion into the public sphere, and above all, reverse Roe v. Wade and allow states to ban abortion. Abortion being what Tubin calls the defining subject and the central legal issue before the court. With the recent appointments of John Roberts and Samuel Alito, joined by Scalia, Thomas, and usually Kennedy, the goals of this conservative takeover are now tantalizingly within reach. Sotomayor's appointment solidified Souter's liberal leanings, but Ginsburg, age 76, has pancreatic cancer, and Justice Stevens is almost 90. Contrary to what John Roberts claims, justices are not neutral arbiters of our legal business. They're not umpires merely calling balls and strikes. This, says Tubin, is a magnificent illusion. To think that justices operate at a higher plane than mortals who toil on the ground. No, what drives their decisions is not mere intelligence or legal skill, but personal ideology, partisan politics, and judicial philosophy. What matters then, writes Tubin, is not the quality of the arguments, but the identity of the justices. Our Constitution does not have an obvious meaning. It's subject to wide varieties of interpretations. The current polarizations dismay many people, Tubin admits, and the hope for a middle ground where the law becomes obvious and clear dies hard. But that is a false hope. Like the President and the Congresses, our justices are very much part of our inherently political process. So in the end, says Tubin, we, the people, choose our justices by the way we vote. Jeffrey Tubin, the Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court. <clears throat> For film this week, I review John Adams' the HBO miniseries from 2008. Paul Giamatti, Giamatti stars as John Adams, the first vice president and the second president of the United States, in this historical drama based upon David McCullough's Pulitzer Prize winning bio biography of the same title. The seven-part series begins in 1770 with the Boston Massacre and ends with the improbable death of both Thomas Jefferson 
in Adams on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1826. The series will appeal to history buffs, but it's really more of a character study of Adams himself and his wife Abigail. Openly affectionate, their devotion to one another was legendary. Adams, for example, would refer to her as his best, dearest, worthiest, and wisest friend in the world. Over a thousand letters between the two of them survive. Along the way, the famous founding fathers populate the drama, including Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and George Washington. I agree with the many viewers who've commented how the film makes you see and feel how audacious and tenuous was the Declaration of Independence by the fragile colonies and the greatness of the men who transformed their grand vision into practical reality against all odds. It was Adams, above all people, who understood that the break with Britain was the easy part and that the country's really heavy lifting required building a government, as he called it, of laws and not of men. About a year before he died, at the age of 91, his son, John Quincy Adams, was elected our sixth president. This miniseries makes for fantastic family viewing. The HBO miniseries, John Adams. <clears throat> and finally, for poetry, we posted what might be my favorite poem of all time in keeping with the theme of our essay. The title of the poem is The Revival. It's by the Welsh poet and physician Henry Vaughan, 1621 to 1695. By his own description, Henry Vaughan underwent a spiritual awakening that he credited to the poetry of whom he called the blessed man, Mr. George Herbert. Henry Vaughan, The Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in express joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt Oh, here the lilies of his love appear. Henry Vaughan, The Revival. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 4th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.